This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast for the week of February 11th. I'm Zarar, filling in for the vacationing William Liu. This is episode 956 of the Rapcast. Um, I recall maybe a dozen years ago when the first uh, podcast was recorded, it was in the aftermath of a Knicks win in which Andrea Bargnani played. And here we are more than a decade later, and the Knicks serve once again as a backdrop uh, to the podcast. And joining me uh, to talk about Raptors and other stuff is our own two-way player Tim Chisholm. Ah, that's a that's a quite the intro. The Knicks were, you know, they were hanging around a little too long for my comfort, but at the same time, you kind of knew that they weren't going to win. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to be at that place with this team where I, there was about four or five points in that game where if this were four or five years ago, even if the team was as good as it is now, you'd be sitting there thinking like, oh, this is over. Knicks are going to win it. But at no point, at no point did I think the Knicks were going to win that game. Yeah, n- not not once you have Marcus Gasol in there for the Raptors. And I, I was checking the uh, comment section for uh, uh, for the post-game post there. And, you know, people were just drooling over everything Gasol did. Even when he had, like, a turnover or a bad pass, they were like, oh, what, a, what an amazing bad pass. Like, did you see that pass? I mean, once he makes that pass, it'll be amazing. So, so, so the Raptors uh, fans have definitely drunk the Kool-Aid for uh, Marc Gasol. What, what are your thoughts on the, on the trade, and does it advance the Raptors' chances this postseason? Maybe. I mean, it's such a weird thing with the East this year because of the way that the, the top four teams kind of play out. I mean, if you go up against Philly, that's a huge get. If you go up against um, Boston, I think it's a huge get. Against Milwaukee, I don't know that it necessarily tips the scales. So... I think it kind of depends on how it shakes out, but I think anytime you can add that much experience, that much IQ, that much talent to the team uh, for the cost that it was, I think you do it. You know, and, and I think there's even a point with this team where they just started to look lethargic and just something to kind of kick the rust off a little bit heading into the last three, last third of the season. I, I'm all for. Yeah, and you talked about the cost a little bit. Obviously, Jonas Valanciunas goes the other way. And if you were following the uh, the trade rumors before the um, you know over the last couple of weeks, the one guy that the Raptor fans were hugely reluctant to give up was Pascal Siakam, and I felt we had almost programmed ourselves to 
be okay with whatever trade happens as long as Siakam stayed. And so, well, so when JV was announced along with DeLon and um, and uh, CJ Miles, it, even though JV was a you know a pretty big player for us for a long, long time, and I was a big fan of him, it didn't feel like a kick in the teeth. It just felt like you know what that the Raptors kind of came out on top in terms of talent. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of what has been the mo for Ujiri for most of his tenure. You know, he's not a guy that necessarily looks to win every trade, but he's definitely a guy that does not lose trades. And the sentiment about losing someone like JV is, it's too bad. It's, I, I, was, I was with some friends earlier in the week and we were talking about some of the trades that get, were getting kicked around and guys that might be on the move. And you are kind of reaching that point where all of the sort of, aside from Kyle Lowry, all the long-term guys have really sort of been shed. And it's an interesting team that if they wind up making it to the playoffs and deep into the playoffs to the finals that you don't necessarily have that, like we've all been doing this together kind of, uh, kind of feeling from the team. But at the same time, if you actually want to get there, you know, it's going to cost you. And I think for this particular team, it's even if they'd given up Siakam, I think the only reason you would have been able to swallow it is because you know how much it would have taken to get you Jerry to do it. So the trade would have in theory been worth it, but it's, uh, it's the price of doing business. You know, JV really rehabbed his whole career in Toronto by the time he got sent away. And he kind of got sent away in the, almost the best possible way if, uh, if it's going to happen. Yeah, and also, it's a, what I feel bad about from a JV perspective is that, you know, he's been with the Raptors for so long. And finally, we have a team which is a legit contender. And mm. now that we're in the midst of it, we're making a run. Like, we're, we're gearing up for the postseason. We ship the guy who's been with us throughout all this, throughout the rebuild phase, throughout like from the beginning, right? And and now he's going to a team which is, you know, basically in rebuild phase, which has nothing. So you have to feel a little bad for the guy who who has been in losing situations, finally a winner, and kind of gets resets all the way back. Yeah, it's too bad. I The only reason why I'm not devastated for him, because at least he's going to a place now where he's going to play. I think the thing with the Raptors this year, and both him and Ibaka handled it really well, but that idea of platooning the center position always felt like, a bit of a cop-out on the part of, of Nick Nurse. And not to say that it was bad coaching. I mean, your Delta situation where you've got two guys that both sort of deserve to start based off of their uh, their history with the team. But you, JV was the one that was going to lose out in that arrangement. JV was the guy that wasn't as strong a defender, uh, doesn't have the same ability to kind of keep up with the modern centers that were going to be thrown at them in the playoffs. And so at least in going to Memphis, Here's a guy who has worked really hard for the last couple of years, especially to sort of transform his game, make it a bit more modern. And you're not now having done that stuck playing behind a guy like Ibaka. Yeah, I mean, yes, the team is going to be losing, but he's also very he's coming up on his free agency. He's going to get another good deal. And at least this way, he's coming up on that with a starting role rather than doing it, sort of being the guy that lost out um, to Serge Ibaka in the starting lineup. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Gasol a, a little. Obviously, he's the, he's a big guy coming back. I think there's a general acknowledgement that he's a a far superior defensive player than JV was, and JV had his moments here and there. And I, I remember over the last uh, couple of weeks when the Raptors were kind of in their uh, you know in their downturn, people were looking at JV as a his return as a possible defensive improvement. Like he might fill some gaps, he get you know clean up the offensive rebounds a little bit, and 
they were anticipating JV not just from an offensive perspective, but also almost more from a defensive perspective. And now you have Gasol there, who's obviously a, a much better defender. However, does does Gasol's introduction change the way the Raptors play on offense, or does he kind of just take kind of the similar positions as JV? Like, well, how do you, how do you see that happening? I think if you use in the same way you use JV, it's like a waste of a player. I mean, you saw it a little bit even in the game yesterday. It's This is a guy that just sees the game completely differently. He's a guy that does make reads and can make passes and can control the flow and the tempo of the offense in a way that there was a hope that maybe JV could get there, or at least get to a, a, a facsimile of that one day. But that's not... Uh, that's not something that was ever necessarily going to impact his game and design the team's offense the way that Marcus Gasol would. I, I think that when you bring in a guy like Gasol, you bring him in for the whole for the whole cake. You know, this is a guy that it's kind of funny to me when they sort of talk about maybe deploying him in these very select or isolated situations. Like, no, he's still a really good player, and yes, he's not what he was two or three years ago. It seems like that caveat always has to be applied to him, but. He's also coming to a team where he doesn't have to be the first or second guy anymore. He can now be the fourth guy and let loose those skills. I think it's going to be potentially really transformative for the team, especially for a team that goes through these offensive lulls where things just seem so stagnant and nothing really seems to be happening. This is a guy that just creates movement by virtue of the way that he finds people and the way that he moves the ball. So I think this is why I have no worry about Nurse using him in the way that he should be used because nurse is the kind of guy who really likes to throw all kinds of offensive looks at other teams and gasol just has unlocked this whole treasure trove of of, of things that the team can do now um so yeah i think that the, the sort of throw it down to jv post up uh look for for gasol will be the minority of the touches he gets with the raptors yeah, I'm almost thinking something like an Arvidas Sabonis type position, right? I mean, you throw the ball in the uh, low block on the baseline, or even in the uh, in, in the in the high post area, and you can kind of wait to see what happens because if you have enough player movement, he can read the game well enough where he can make something happen. Whereas JV, you, you know, as you said, it's basically a one or two trick pony. Either he goes inside or he drops down. But with Gasol, the opportunities are almost proportional to the ball movement around him. And the thing with someone like Gasol, too, that I think can sometimes get overlooked when people talk about passing big men is there's a difference between a big man who has the technical ability to pass versus a big man that sees the game like a point guard. You know, JB had started to get a little bit better at his kickouts, technically becoming a better passer. Gasol sees the passes before they happen. So you're now finding guys a beat, a half beat sooner than they were getting found in other situations. And that kind of thing really kickstarts an offense because now you've got the defense scrambling in a way that they really didn't have to before. I mean, Lowry is the only guy in that starting five that really moves the ball like that. And probably the only guy on the team that really moves the ball like that. And so having another weapon at the sort of other side of the, of the starting five or the bench, however they decide to use them, I think really opens up a kind of um, speed to the offense that will really start shifting defense and hopefully get the team a little bit more movement, uh, a little bit more dynamic, and a little bit more unpredictable uh, in this last third of the season. Yeah, and, and, and like personally, I'm just looking forward to like, like yesterday there was a sequence in the game where the Knicks went to uh, yeah, Jordan in the post against Gasol. And before it even happened, I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is not going to go anywhere. 
And sure enough, he tried to you know, dribble a couple times, turn baseline, and Gasol anticipated it beautifully, and it ended up being a... Like, they, they ended up not scoring on the position, and the, and the ball went the other way. It, it's that kind of defensive solidity that I'm... I'm, and you mentioned earlier it might not factor against certain teams, like against Boston, for example, with Al Horford in the post. That's a huge deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Against Milwaukee, you know, you, you mentioned it, it may not be a big factor. But, you know, but with Lopez hitting threes, do you think he's somebody who can actually check Lopez in those situations, or is he still somebody who likes to hang back? I think you know, I think he can check Lopez better than Valanciunas could. I, I think that you probably. Uh, see more of a Baca against him. But no, it's not like you put Marcus Gasol on, on Brooke Lopez and you think Milwaukee has now won that matchup. I, I think that he's perfectly capable of keeping up with them. Uh, he's perfectly... So that was the big difference also with Marcus Gasol and Valanciunas in terms of the way in which uh, they move on defense is Valanciunas was never quick-footed. And even when Gasol was a much heavier guy earlier in his career, he always had really quick feet. Uh, and so the ability to kind of get out and contest and then come back down and, and help in scenarios. It, this is, this is a much easier thing to do with, with Marcus Hull than it was at Valanciunas. So I still think that that's a fine matchup. I just imagine that if, uh, if they were to match up in the playoffs, you would probably see more minutes with Ibaka doing it than Gasol. Yeah. And I'm going to throw in some Twitter questions here too, because I think we have, we got a lot of responses for this one. Um, and mm. this is related to what we're talking about. I mean, this is from um, P Kelly and he goes, uh, do you anticipate any sets being run specifically for Gasol, or does he just blend in so well that he's, he'll find a place in the offense? We kind of touched on this. Um, I, I think we concluded that it'd be a shame if we don't uh, kind of architect our offense c- considering his skills. Absolutely. I mean, if this were 12 months ago, which is not that long ago, you're talking about getting an all-star kind of play. I mean, he still is a borderline all-star player. It, you know, I find that sometimes people look at it as though the Raptors picked up someone like Brooke Lopez. Like this is an immensely talented person who can be deployed a multitude of ways. I think there's no chance that they don't run offense specifically to utilize his skills, uh, either in the high post or the low post or in the pick and pop uh, to get him out behind the three point line. He's a potentially transformative offensive weapon for this particular team, because there's just things that he can do that nobody else on the team can do. And when you're trying to go up against some really, really talented teams at the top of the East, you're going to use every one of those weapons that you can. You're not going to pretend like Marcus Gasol's coming in as a role player. He's coming in as a significant con- contributor to the team. So I can't imagine why Nurse wouldn't craft mm-hmm. offense to run through Marcus Gasol. So if you compare the uh, trade deadline for some of the top teams here in, in the East, the Sixers obviously uh, had the trade with, uh, and they got Tobias Harris. Uh, the Bucks had a nice deal at the end there. Nikola Mirotic went to them, and, and they didn't really have to give up you know, a rotation player for that. And the Raptors got Gasol. Of the three teams, who do you think improved from where they were uh, the most? I'd, I'd probably lean towards Milwaukee. Um, Miritich is such a hand-in-glove fit for the way that team works. I, I think that the thing that the only reason I think I differ from people about Philly getting Tobias Harris is that you're not getting Tobias Harris the contributor to the degree that he was in LA. You know, you're still dealing with a guy now who goes from being the number one option to the number four option on a team, and he's a great fourth option, but. The things you need out of a fourth option are different than the things you need 
out of a first or second option. And that ability to sort of move without the ball, the ability to see your spots, to hit really efficiently with fewer touches, maybe that's fine. And maybe Harris is able to adapt to all of that. I mean, in the first couple of games he's been with the team, uh, Philly's been fantastic. But I just look at the way that that team is made up and some of the internal struggles that they've had. I think it's a great trade. And I think that they that they make that trade 10 days out of 10. But in terms of the way that the guys who are coming in fit into the teams that they're playing with, I think you get a very low maintenance guy in Miritich coming into Milwaukee and just becomes another thing that they can throw at other teams that requires almost no change to the way that they're already playing. And because the way that they're already playing is at an obscenely high level of basketball. Mm-hmm. And, and did you uh, catch uh, LeBron's comments about how uh, now that he's out of the uh, East, everybody's trying to make trades because he's not there? What, what did you think of those? <laughs> LeBron's had a weird year. You know, like, it's almost as though because no one really got that upset that he went to L.A. Everyone sort of saw it happening. You almost have to feel like he wants people to be angrier at him. The way that he's been handling the Anthony Davis stuff, uh, kind of comments like that, the MVP stuff, or the, the greatest of all time stuff that happened earlier in the season. You almost like L.A. hasn't been that good. And aside from the Davis stuff, they haven't really been that consistently in the media spotlight, which I guess you would have assumed would have happened if you're LeBron going to LA. I mean, it's like, it's true in a way, you know, all of these guys do now see a path to the finals because he's not there, but I don't know what the value really was in, in throwing that out there aside from the fact that, you know, no one had been paying enough attention to him for the last 24 hours. So and, uh, this is, yeah. And just pulling on that a little bit. I mean, obviously we have teams going quote unquote all in this year uh, for the NBA finals in the East. And obviously only one of the four teams that are vying for it will make it there. Mm-hmm. And for the other three, it's going to be next season. Of, of, these, of these teams, Celtics, Raptors, you know, Bucks, Philly, if this year doesn't work out, which of those four clubs is in you know, the best position to compete for the next two to three years when LeBron also isn't here? Like We're pretending that LeBron's only gone for a year, so he better do everything this year. But we're, we're looking at a longer window here. Of the four teams... If it doesn't work out for them this year, like which which one's uh, best positioned? See, this is what makes this playoffs so crazy in the East is every one of these teams could wind up being almost completely dismantled by uh, by the time the next season rolls around, depending on how they do in the playoffs. I mean, Milwaukee is is just free agents. So if they for some reason flame out, there's an opportunity now to maybe say, do we bring these guys back or these guys to say, well, maybe it doesn't work. You've got the Kyrie situation going on in Boston. We all know about Kawhi Leonard in Toronto. Uh, and and Philly has to find a way to re-sign Harris and, and Jimmy Butler. It's, I mean, let's, if we assume that the rosters as constructed were to go forward, I, you know, I'd probably say, I'd probably say Milwaukee. Um, but, it's, but it's actually the thing that makes me the most excited about this postseason is that scenario of LeBron not coming back so all of these teams get to run it back next year like doesn't exist. There's a good chance that two or three of these teams... like Imagine a scenario where Toronto's the team that gets to the finals and still Kawhi Leonard leaves to go to LA. Now you've got two teams that went out in the conference semis and one team that goes out in the conference finals, everybody going out earlier than they would have wanted. And then the team that gets to the finals also loses that main guy. I mean, you could have a situation where almost all of these teams make, not major, but could make major changes, either by their own volition or not, 
uh, that sees them come back completely different next year. I, it's, I don't think there's ever been a, a season like this where that's the case. Mm-hmm. And b- before we move on from the Gasol stuff, I, I do want to touch on uh, this question from uh, Shashank. Three mm-hmm. Shank, And he goes, uh, how does the Gasol-Ibaka matchup against other big men in the East who do we play against whom? You mentioned earlier that with, with JV and Ibaka, it has been a bit of a cop-out by Nick Nurse where they're kind of sharing minutes. Uh, Ibaka has been getting, I'd say, the majority of them because of JV's injury and so on. Does that pattern of splitting minutes at the five continue, or are, are we thinking of moving Ibaka back to the four? How, how do you see that playing out? Or what are Nurse's options here? So I think Nurse has, I mean, there's three options in front of him, and it's benching somebody. It's either benching Gasol, like there was uh, last night, because he's the new guy. Um, actually, there's, I guess there's crazy. There's four options. Benching Gasol, like they did last time, kind of throw him against um, reserve units, try to kickstart the bench offense, and then let him play spot minutes with the starters. There's benching Ibaka in the you know, inverse situation. There's benching Siakam and making the front court look like it did last year. And then there's the platooning. Uh, Ibaka and Gasol in the starting lineup and leaving Siakam where he is. I would imagine, actually, you know what? I I don't know with any confidence exactly what Nick Nurse is going to do. What I think he should do is start Marc Gasol. And it it makes me sad to say that because of all the players on the Raptors this year, Ibaka has been the most consistent. He's come back significantly improved from last year. Uh, he's done everything the team could have asked of him when they were platooning earlier in the season. He didn't say a word. There's, He was the sort of least of the problems of the team this year. And so in a way, it feels unfair that he gets sent to the bench. But for me, Gasol is just better. And the things that Gasol does can significantly improve the starting lineup. But that doesn't mean to me that now Gasol starts playing 35 minutes a game and you really are marginalizing Ibaka. My guess is what probably happens is you do some kind of split where Gasol is the first guy that goes to the bench and Ibaka comes in, logs a you know a handful of minutes with the starters, mostly Lowry being the important one, then kind of transitions into the bench unit. Um, and then Gasol sort of spells him, but sort of halfway through that bench cycle and and sits with them and as the game sort of wears on you 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 play in the in the late third and fourth quarter whoever's playing better um i, I would i would like to see a situation like that i just would like to see marcus Hull with the starters i think what he does uh with them is really important and i also think that that doesn't also mean that nurse has to do the thing which he's still kind of i almost stubbornly doing which is forcing starting units and bench units to play as units um, and I think he's probably doing it mostly right now because he's trying to get as many minutes with Lowry and Kawhi together as possible. But as he sort of prepares for what the, the playoffs might look like, that's how I would hope that the rotation goes. Um, I really hope he doesn't platoon them. I think that there's so much, there's so many chemistry issues that have been happening with the lineups on this team so far this year. Uh, it, that made a lot of sense to try out in October and November. I think at this point, you've got to just stick with not only a starting lineup, but bit more of a, of, of a formal rotation um, and really only deviate from that when, when circumstances demand it. Because right now, I think of all the things that really plague this team, it is, it's just that you just see guys who aren't quite entirely sure what their roles are, when they're coming in, when they're going out. And it's one of the things that I actually think might've worked out nicely from this trade and losing all of these players that they did is 
you kind of can't ping pong the rotation as much anymore. I mean, Norman Powell is your backup too. Uh, OG is your backup four. Like this, these things, even now McCaw has sort of eating up some of those minutes at backup three. It, it, this, the rotation has actually been somewhat set in stone by the number of guys they have. And I think that that might have a pretty positive impact going, uh, going the rest of the way if, if Nurse can sort of stick with it. One of the guys you mentioned there, OG, uh, he's had a stop-and-start season. He's had a couple of good games here, and then he falls off the cliff. Some personal issues he's dealing with as well. So, uh, now he, he is a key player for us. Obviously, he's, he's our backup four, as you said. It, it, what needs to happen for him from now till the postseason for him to have him to have a meaningful impact in the postseason? Because right now, he's definitely somebody you can't rely on for production. Like, he got sent to the bench yesterday after a couple of bad plays. He, he's generally been inconsistent look what's his path from now till say mid-april uh so that he comes into the, into the postseason with a, with some expectation of production i think that partly depends on Nigeri. i i mean assuming that there's nobody that gets brought in to replace his minutes which i think is a very distinct possibility i think it's why the raptors are, are, are poking around at, at markeith morris i think that with og right now if he's going to turn it around on his own it's you hoping that the problem with him right now is just exactly what you said. It's the being kind of in and out of the lineup all year, um, dealing with the emotional strain of his father passing. I think those are the kinds of things that make his season completely explainable. But at the same time, you know, it's a finals or bust kind of year for the Raptors. And so as justifiable as his struggles have been, you can see why the team might want to have someone else eating up his minutes if that's possible. So I think it depends on how much confidence the team has in OG's ability to sort of put this stuff away, um, ease back into the lineup, ease back into the rotation, and 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 find his game again. But if I'm being honest, I, I would imagine that if Ujiri has the chance to bring in somebody that he and Nurse believes could be a rotation player off of the buyout market, uh, I don't think they're going to hesitate to sort of sit OG down and say, you know what, it's been a crazy year. Like we're going to make you a bit more of a spot player as needed, but we're going to sort of pull that load off of your shoulders uh, for the rest of the year because I just don't know that you're in a position to roll the dice uh, with him as your sort of primary uh, sort of three, four off of the bench. All right, so we got a bunch of questions on possible buyout options. Is there, <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, is there anybody in particular that you're like, maybe? L- let me read off some names for you, and you tell me, yeah, or you say, <laughs> meh, or you say, hell no. Okay. All right, or some variant of that. Carmelo Anthony. No. <laughs> Gortat. No, no. Gort, see, Gortat is an, like, there's a couple of really? centers that are going to come up. Really? Well, no, I don't actually, but no, here's the thing. Okay. No, I mean, the answer is no. But, but it's interesting that it's right now so many of these names of like the kind of higher end players are centers, which the team don't really need. It's sort of like it's like a weird buyout market. It's sort of like those free agent years when all of the or the or the drafts where all of the best people available at that time are kind of that one position that you're already overstocked in. Um, so, I mean, no to Gortat, but it's uh, it's an interesting year for that. Uh, so many good centers becoming available in the buyout. Uh, Kaminsky. Nah, no. Nah. Enos Cantor. People are really into this idea of Cantor coming here. I don't see it. I mean, a guy that 
is really plays zero defense at a position that they don't really need and he can't play for. So for me, no, but people seem transfixed by the possibility of him coming here. Let me uh, let me put it this way. If you had yeah. to put if you had to give up Greg Monroe and get one of these guys, would you do it? The, the next one I'm going to tell you is Robin Lopez. Yeah, I, I would give up Monroe to get Lopez or Gortat in a heartbeat uh, when you had – if you knew that they would be okay playing the role that Gortat played. Um, but I don't know that either one of them sort of sits quietly while they go – I mean, assuming that Ibaka and Gasol are healthy, they they just won't play. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those in – in a, in a video game world where they don't get a say – then yeah, it's fine. But I think in the real world, there's a chance that that actually causes more harm than good. And Marquise Morris is obviously the other guy that... Uh, but but one, one guy that, whose name was thrown around, Jeremy Lin. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I the, Yeah, I mean, Lin, I do in a heartbeat. If, if Atlanta sort of softens their stance about their guys and, and, and lets, lets some of them go, I, I if you're the Raptors, I think, um, after Wes Matthews, he's the guy that you're kind of thankful that you have your exceptions left to throw money at, because I think he would be a, a, a terrific, um, a terrific offensive option to throw out there with that second unit. And I think for me, as someone who wants Gasol to start, I think he helps make that easier because you now have somebody alongside of Van Vliet, who is a bit better at running an offense and a bit better at, uh, a bit better as a passer. He's not, you know, a, a, an amazing playmaker, but he just gives you enough of that skill set that I think, uh, yeah, I, that one I do in a heartbeat. Uh, let's move on to some Kawhi talk. Uh, in yesterday's game, uh, Samson Folk was doing the quick reaction and he described uh, Kawhi's offense uh, as compartmentalized. And I think where he was going with that one is that it seems that there is the Raptors offense, which does a bunch of things. And then you give the ball to Kawhi, and it's very much Kawhi's turn to do something. And I have noticed that trend as well, where he's kind of on his own, and the guy that he finds most chemistry with, the guy he looks out for the most, is Danny Green, actually. So like, if, mm-hmm. if, if you see him and Danny Green, they're usually always on the same wavelength. Like He knows where the guy is at all times. Obviously, playing with San Antonio for, for so long, you get that. How do you, how, what do you think Nurse is doing right and wrong integrating Kawhi into the larger offense? I think I think he did the right thing at the start of the year, almost explicitly running those two different offenses. I think they were. There really was a Raptors as we've known them, running their stuff from last year, and then these sort of Kawhi ISO uh, moments where he gets his touches, he gets to use his superior skill, and as the year has gone on, more and more teams have sort of snuffed that out. And I don't know that Nurse has either been proactive enough or had enough reps with the starters as uh, as you would like in terms of them being healthy to implement this sort of thing. I think you're starting to see a little bit more of Kawhi involved in the regular offense. You know, he's, his assist numbers are starting to tick up. You're starting to see him be involved in some of the sort of dribble handoff actions uh, and pick and roll actions that the team runs. It's not nearly as seamlessly integrated as DeMar DeRozan was, but you're starting to see that effort kind of get put in. But I do think that what that has somewhat done is neuter him a bit 
because now he isn't playing off of that same level of instinct. He's now trying to figure out how he plays inside of the role within the team. And so even though you have a game like last night where he does take the most shots for the team, he still only ends up with 11 points. You know, you're seeing that, that, that guy who is clearly having a lot drawn up for him, but that sort of discomfort in trying to take those shots in a slightly different situation than he was at the start of the year. So I don't know that anything has gone wrong, but I think that it's one of these situations that Nurse has to, to whatever way he can. I mean, as a team, you're typically pretty reluctant to have many practices after the All-Star game, but trying to find a way to make those scenarios more comfortable for Kawhi Leonard, uh, because when the playoffs come, you can't just be running those two offense. You can't fall back on the thing that was working in uh, in October and November because teams figured that out. And so they've got to be able to get him to a place where he is basically as effective as he was earlier in the year, but as a more integrated member uh, of the team as a whole, which is another reason for me why I would start someone like Marcus Gasol, because he is somebody that can find a guy like Kawhi uh, in spots that aren't quite as predictable as some of the sets that they run uh, with Lowry dominating the ball. And if you look at the Spurs, how they used to play, they always had a decent passing big man who, who, who they, even though they didn't run the offense completely around him, he was a pivotal figure in what they were trying to do, whether it be, you know, Tim Duncan or Paul Gasol <laughs> or whoever it was. Uh, and I think the Raptors with, with Gasol now have that element in their game where Kawhi maybe doesn't have to initiate so much all the time. You can use Gasol as this almost like postman and, and kind of see what you can do around him. I think that's been missing so far this season. And I'm hoping that's the element that kind of sparks Kawhi into being more integrated with the offense. Not that the guards are doing things differently, but now that the structure of the offense might have changed because of some the, the new tools the big man brings. No, I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. And I think that it actually does bring Kawhi to a place where he can able he can run sets that are more familiar with him. I mean, obviously played with Tim Duncan for the longest time, switches over to playing with Pau Gasol. I mean, he's a guy who is used to running a certain amount of offense through big men in that way. And I don't know if that means that you actually lift San Antonio actions and put them into Toronto's offense. But I think that that notion of being able to play off of a big man feeding you on back cuts, on handoffs, on pick and pops, pick and rolls, that kind of stuff. I think that that could really help orient his comfort level uh, with the way that the offense is run. I think you hit the nail on the head with it. And I think high IQ players like playing with other high IQ players because you don't need the system as much. I mean, you, you want a system to kind of give you a sense of what are the priorities within this offense, but you don't need the system to dictate entire actions. And when you're playing younger guys, you tend to need a lot of that because they're still kind of figuring out a lot of the intricacies of the NBA. But once you get to a place where you have guys like Lowry and Green and Kawhi and then Marcus Gasol, I think you are dealing with a lot of high IQ guys who understand how to use the floor to their advantage rather than just using the offense to their advantage. And it's, it's, it's a look that I think Toronto of the four main teams in the sort of playoff chase in the East are best equipped to take advantage of because they do have, they're a bit more veteran than a lot of these other teams. And I think they have that kind of savvy that if they're looking for what is their edge against a lot of the, the other teams at the top of the East, that's going to be it. It's, it's going to be their ability to kind of lean on that sort of veteran savvy, that playoff savvy, 
when they go up against a lot of these teams who have really built themselves around younger and maybe even more dynamic uh, dynamic players. Uh, let's uh, kill off a couple of Twitter questions uh, while we're on this topic somewhat, but not really, but we got a couple <laughs> of Twitter questions. Um, of, the, of the three, 76ers, Bucks, and Celtics, rank them on who would you rather play first in the playoffs? Like who, mm-hmm. who's the easiest matchup for the Raptors of the three? I, I, I still think it's Philly. I, I mean, maybe I'm too hard on Philly and maybe it's too much of that recency bias of just having watched Toronto uh, beat them fairly handily. But they're just a team to me that they look so combustible internally. That bench is still weak and obviously they're not going to need to rely on it as much in the postseason. But I just think that for whatever reason, the way in which the Raptors are are com- uh, composed and the way in which Philly is composed, the advantages seem to balance out towards Toronto. Having a guy like Leonard being able to somewhat neutralize a guy like Ben Simmons, which really cuts the head off of the snake of what they want to do. And then you throw Marcus Gasol at Joel Embiid. And you've got these guys who, for a lot of the regular season, are able to do what they do because their unique properties just tend to overwhelm the other team and teams don't have proper checks for them. When a team has checks for them, they become a lot easier to neutralize because you're just now you've taken them out of their comfort zone. And they actually remind me in that way, a lot of the Raptors with Lowry and DeRozan, which is in the regular season, they feast against teams that just aren't that well equipped to match up against what they do. But once you get to the postseason, you're dealing with teams now that do have those tools. Better teams had the tools to stop them. And I think that that's what you're going to see with Philly. And that's something that maybe Jimmy Butler helps push them past. But I just see them as, of those of those teams, the one that just seems the most fragile. And that includes, up to, of the top four teams, they, to me, seem like the most fragile team. And I would imagine that any of the other three would probably want to be seeing Philly, despite the fact that Boston has the far worse record. Yeah. I'd yeah, say far worse, but yeah, the worst I'd record. say Philly and then Boston, then Milwaukee. I think, I think in that mm-hmm. sequence for sure. Uh, so, so the Raptors did ship off uh, C.J. Miles and uh, DeLon Wright, who were getting some rotation minutes here and there. And that puts a lot of pressure on Norman Powell, who now will get more minutes, uh, especially with OG kind of on and off. It's kind of scary to put our eggs in the Norman Powell basket. Uh, but I guess at this point, we don't have a choice. And to his credit, he has responded of late uh, with the minutes. His shot's looking better. He ha- he hit a couple threes yesterday against the Knicks as well. More, you know, emphasis in his step, better finishing at the rim. Tell, put, put your crystal ball on. Is this a Norman Powell we'll see throughout the postseason and, and the rest of the regular season? Or are you sensing a dip in consistency like we have kind of been accustomed to? Now, I'm pretty optimistic about Powell right now. It really feels like he's put last year behind him. You know, it, He's really started to kind of see what teams are giving him and is able to sort of, is able to exploit them. You know, for the last, like, both February and January, he's now in double-digit scoring. He's being able to move the ball a little bit more. He's not playing the kind of like lockdown defense that I think we had hoped he'd be able to play at this point in his career, but he is playing smart defense. And he's just a guy that you don't have to expect that that much from him, but I think he sort of has lived up to the role that, that the team has, has put in front of him. That said, 
you do have that like voice in the back of your head saying, if it doesn't work with him, that's all they got. You know, there is no release valve on, on Norman Powell. If his game does start to go south, you're now going to start trawling the buyout market for whatever it is that you can get. Because uh, I don't think it's going to be Malcolm Miller that really offsets that. But I have enough faith in him, given the way that he's been playing this year and his first couple of years in the league, that I think last year was just sort of an aberrant year for him. And that uh, if they continue feeding him consistent minutes and they keep entrusting him to run the role that he's been he's been running, uh, especially since the new year, I think that he's going to continue to give them positive minutes. Um, but I still, you know, I say that with with with, with a wary tremble in my voice uh, because we have seen him kind of, you know, fall, when he falls off a cliff, like he falls all the way to the bottom. And, and poor guy, we used to we used to have him guard LeBron James. Yeah, like that was not in yeah. hindsight. That was not very fair. <laughs> but you know that, that. But that brings up a really, really good point because I think that the things that they would throw at Norman Powell. I mean, because he would guard James, he would guard. He would guard. Tried to guard Dwayne Paul Wade George. in the one series against Maya. Yeah, like it's they cast him in a role that he didn't. Like he didn't. I mean, sometimes he sort of embarrassed himself doing it. But considering his age and all the rest of it, like that was kind of okay. But I think it kind of inflated the expectations and the, and the career curve people expected him to have, which really made last year a disappointment. And you feel as though this year, more than anything, he's just more mentally right. And being able to mostly just go up against uh, second unit guys, because it's, you know, you don't have that situation that you had before where it was Powell spelling DeRozan, who was a negative defender, you know. You've got Powell playing behind Danny Green and somewhat sometimes behind Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these are guys that will handle the heavy lifting. You don't ever need to bring in Powell for his defense. You're just bringing him in to soak up minutes while those guys rest, which is a very, very different scenario. And it really lowers the risk of having a guy like Powell be your backup to uh, than it was a couple of years ago when they really seemed like they were trying to groom him into being sort of the future of the small forward position for the team. Yeah. Uh, so if you heard a weird noise in the podcast earlier, uh, that was just uh, Nick Nurse fixing the kink in Kyle's shot. <laughs> did you did you notice something weird about Kyle's shot that was fixed over the last couple of games, which allowed him to go 6 for 10 against the Knicks? I mean, I noticed that he was hitting them, but <laughs> Kyle, that was one of the last people I would have thought that they would start tinkering with his shot. Uh, I it, it's a, it's a kind of credit to, to, to Lowry that, you know, he was someone that allowed his shot to be tinkered with. You know, he's a guy that tends to sort of feel that he can, uh, he'll just sort of bounce back from any kind of struggles that he has. But if that, I mean, if that's what it was and that's all it was and they have fixed it. Do, do, do you uh, believe that? Like, do you honestly believe that? Like, that's a, like, Lowry's been playing forever. And he's been, he's been, a you know, close to a 40% three-point shooter for a long time. And he developed a, a, a kink really does that happen mm. like is that is that a thing i mean probably not i i mean it's it's the kind of thing you see so often in baseball where uh where guys just sort of get a little bit in their head and you sort of start leaning on a certain amount of superstition to get out of it i think that with someone like lowry but maybe he did i you know let's let's just for assume for a second that this is all a little bit of a little bit of make-believe at least you sort of understand that kind of psychological trick of 
here's a guy who's been struggling shooting for a while in the season, you know, and if as a team, you can come up and say, oh, we figured it out. You know, it was this, this random little thing in your shot. If you, you know, tuck your elbow in a little bit more or you, or you hold your release for an extra half second, you know, that's going to, that's all it was, you know, it just sort of gets you out of that mental place of, I'm just not as good as I used to be back into, oh yeah, 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 obviously, you know, it, this is, this was just my, my shot mechanic had, 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 had a weird kink in it. You know, and it, it might be one of those lies that everybody just sort of agrees to believe. Yeah. But uh, it's 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 sort of an end. Whatever the ends or whatever the means were, it justifies the end if Lowry gets back on track with his shooting. Because with Lowry shoots the way he does, you know, it's transformative for this team. Yeah. In the four games in February, he's shooting a 48% from three, which is a, a you know 18% jump over <laughs> 30% in January. So whatever is happening is happening. Uh, by, yeah, by, exactly. by the way, I, I, I am convinced if the Raptors do end up winning a championship, Kyle Lowry will take his shirt off only to reveal a DeMar DeRozan jersey. <laughs> it, it is like, I mean, going back to what you had said about Valanciunas, and it is like well-trod territory. We all talked about it a ton after the Leonard trade, but it is sort of watching how good the Raptors are now and the fact they might be getting to the finals this year or at least have a real shot at the finals. You do have that sort of bittersweet feeling of a guy who, was again he was as instrumental as anybody in actually making that happen it is i don't know i i still every i think with demar coming to town in a couple weeks you know it just sort of reminded me of of there's that side of him you know he's going to come he's going to get his tribute videos and 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 a standing ovation from the crowd and it's all of that but how bittersweet it must be for him to see how good the team has been this year and how he has been able to relish zero in that uh, in that success Mm -hmm. And also would like to add, Kyle Lowry, I believe, is the only guy left over from the Brian Colangelo era at this point. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm looking at the depth chart right now, and everybody else came kind of after him. Not only has everyone come after him, but we've almost done like a full cycle through. You know, you're almost sort of like too removed now from uh, from where Colangelo left the roster, uh, which is, you know, it's it's it's... A nice testament, because I don't know if you remember, I mean, I'm sure you remember, like when, when that first year that Ujiri was in charge of the team, everybody kept sort of saying, well, you know, uh, he's really just doing it with Colangelo's players. And, you know, you've now kind of cycled through a couple of iterations of the roster, and it's as good as it's ever been. And so it is a nice testament to the fact that, you know, no, Ujiri actually also does know how to build a, an NBA team. Yeah. Uh, hey, JV, what, what's your lasting memory of jv like one moment that you're like ah oh, like that's what jv was about like I, i'll go first okay so mm. i've been a big fan of the guy since he came into the league uh on draft day i was torn between i think kemba walker was the other option and i and i was leaning towards kemba at the time but wasn't disappointed with jv followed his career always rooted for him i thought he improved every year got leaner whatever the team asked of him he did hey lose some weight he lost some weight Play in the perimeter, he played in the perimeter. Go in the post, he played in the post. Whatever we asked of him, he did. And he responded positively, never complained. Uh, and he, he was one of my favorite players. However, when I think back to JV's time in Toronto, man, I just think of that game one missed layup against the Cavs mm. where he kind of looks at the ceiling, like looks to the skies as he misses that, and he knows what a big, big moment that was. And... You know, that little scene made it to the hype video for this year uh, that came out. And it, it, it's just like one of those things that when I think of JV, that's the flashback that happens. And it's unfair to the guy. But it's just, you know, for 
for one of my favorite Raptor players ever, that's the one moment that kind of jumps into my mind. Well, it encapsulates so much of the JV experience, right? I mean, when they drafted him, they were talking all these comparisons to guys like Marcus Camby, uh, talking about these sorts of like transformative, long, athletic, big men. Then they try to turn him into a much more sort of plodding, postbound center. Then they start turning him into, I mean, really by the time, you know, he got traded, they really had been trying to turn him into Marcus Ole. And it's, and they quite literally did it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the thing, the one that I always sort of found with JV, and I think that kind of lasting memory of someone like JV is that you talk a lot about the kind of tone that was set uh, with Lowry and DeRozan on the team. But I think JV had a huge impact on guys on this team who, when they show up and maybe they don't have exactly the role that they want, or maybe they're forced uh, to come off the bench or maybe they're forced to, to develop their game in a way that they didn't want. You have this guy who number five pick in the draft, you know, was pretty big money player for the team. And he was always the first one willing to sort of sacrifice for the team or do whatever the team wanted. And that was sometimes due to the fact that what he was doing was not successful. But like you said, often the things that he was doing, he was doing at the behest of the team. And I think, he really did set sort of a tone of like, whatever the team needs, just do it. Just figure it out. Just suck it up. And you, when you saw the guys that were maybe even reluctant to kind of go down that path and some of the guys that have, again, sort of cycled through the team, uh, you know, people maybe like like Grievous Vasquez, the guys who, and Patrick Patterson, who would sometimes sort of bristle at exactly how they were being used. And they do get shipped out because I actually think there was a personality that, that Valanchunas brought to the team, which is very much replicated in a lot of the guys that stand on the team now. And you see it in the reaction to him getting traded, you know, and you, you see it, how much of an impact he had on these people, because I don't think it was just about him being that kind of goofy, fun-loving big guy. I think that there was a, a, a personality that, of his that got imbued in a lot of the sort of uh, the support core for the Raptors. Uh, and that's, I think, the thing that, that I, and it reminds me a lot of, of Jose Calderon in the same way, you know, one of these guys that really set the tone for, for that whole group of the team. Um, and I think that's one of those things that the team will probably miss more than anything. Uh, so yesterday during the, uh, this is on a complete tangent, by the way, uh, yesterday during <laughs> the Knicks game, uh, I was watching the MSG uh, feed and their trivia question had to do with the Raptors and they go, Kyle Lowry is number two all time in Raptors assists who's number one and uh, you know to your point about how removed we are from the uh Calangelo era Calderon didn't even pop into my mind hmm. like it, it, it like it, it, the, the answer had to be revealed because I was thinking Alvin Williams for some reason and I was like of course Jose of course Jose he like he racked up 15 assists a game with Amir Johnson for three years so yep. yeah um that was unrelated but let's go back to Twitter uh there's a couple more questions uh one of them is kind of, it's it's kind of uh, kind of nice. This is asking uh, to an untrained basketball eye, somebody who doesn't maybe understand the game in depth and, and is a casual fan. What are some of the things that we should keep an eye on for Gasol and 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 see what he does that we, maybe we're not used to? And 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 if you're maybe new to the game and you want to see what a smart player does, what could you point them to see in Gasol's game? 
I think, so there's two things that come to mind. One is easier to see than the other. So I think the thing that's easier to see is watching how he controls pace. I think that when you're new to the game of basketball, I think you tend to expect the best teams and the best players to just play as fast as possible and that the kind of fastest, most athletic players are the ones that succeed over everybody else. But when you watch a guy like Gasol, you really want to watch not only how quickly he makes some passes or how quickly he makes some moves or some reads, but the times when he actually takes the time to slow the game back down or wait that extra half beat, when he takes a defense that maybe is trying to play a little bit too quickly and actually uses that against them, uh, is one of the things that's really cool about a guy like Gasol is, and it's something that, that Lowry has always been good at, but you know, it, it, these are players that control the pace of the game not so much just to keep their own team from scrambling out of control, but using pace as a weapon against a team that maybe isn't as in as much control as they should be of the way that they're playing against them. So that's that's a big one, is, is, is watching the moments when maybe he waits a half beat before he makes a pass or makes a read that I think is a big one. And the other one that's a bit harder to see, but you heard them talking about all through the, the Raptors broadcast last night, was the uh, that is how much he talks on defense you know it's coaches would give everything in their possession to have their backline guys be vocal on defense and so many players are so reluctant to be back there just screaming out um the different reads that they're making uh the different schemes that the team is running gasol is just full-throated and that kind of thing makes a huge huge difference because you complain sometimes, I complain all the time about um, when the team just looks like they're a, a leaky faucet at the point of attack, but there are times that's happening because nobody behind them is communicating. I mean, when you're at the top of the of the offense, all you can see is what's in front of you and maybe what's immediately to the side of you. And there's a lot of the offense happening behind you that you're not aware of. And having somebody who's actually communicating that for you uh, makes a huge difference to how everybody on the team plays defense, not just how Gasol himself plays defense. So those are the two things I would watch out for if you're not as uh, not as obsessive about basketball as some people. Uh, that was a question from uh, Zach Allison. Um, there's one more from Aiden. Uh, he wants to know if uh, you want to do anything with J.R. Smith in the buyout market. I, I want to ignore him. Uh, Does that count? Eh, something. <laughs> something. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else? There's a bunch of Twitter questions. Who's the, who's the Raptor most likely to win a Grammy? Are the Grammys on? Do, do you watch award shows? Is that a do no. Nah, 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 no, right? No. No, I really don't. Yeah. I really don't. Did, did you ever? Uh, when I was when I was a so I I did a film minor. So I was like when I was a like teenager, um, and I was sort of into movies. And at the time, I thought that meant like watching the Academy Awards and all that. Um, but no, I, I don't think I probably really watch an award show for probably in at least a decade. But yeah. They're, they're not my thing. What's a, since you're a film minor, is, is there one particular recommendation you want to give that maybe people may not have heard, heard of the movie or is lesser known and you're like, Hey, you should check that out. I would go see if people, it's not an unknown movie, but I would go see if Beale street could talk. It's 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 actually I think lines up well with my comment about Marcus Sol if if uh, that makes any sense but it's a movie that like is paced so beautifully uh, that if you were to describe it to somebody it would sound boring and it would sound slow but it's not a, it's not a slow movie at all it's just a movie that is in such control of its pace uh, 
you know, if you're ever sort of just out there willing to maybe uh, to take a chance on an on an artier movie, um, you know, go see if Beale Street could talk. It's a it's a lovely film. There you go. Uh, I think we're done with Twitter. Uh, so, so some news right. uh, happened uh, today. Chris Boucher, uh, the Montreal mm-hmm. native, uh, got signed to a long term deal by the Raptors. And my reaction was like, good for him. Um, I, I don't watch much G League, but I talked to Andrew Damlin, who covers the G League for uh, Rappers Republic, and uh, he saw a lot of Chris Boucher. And uh, from what he described to me of what he saw in the G League, this is one. He this guy is a tough young man, and uh, like you know, he, he was dominating the G League and stood up to every challenge that he found there. So given where he comes from, Montreal, like it's a it's it's a really a feel good story here, uh, especially after uh, you know the whole Bruno saga, we actually got like a young guy who, uh, who's actually doing something. Your thoughts on uh, Chris Boucher. Yeah. I'm in sort of the same boat that you are. I think that it's always tough for a guy like that to sort of come up from the D league, play a couple of minutes, either because of foul trouble or more often than not at the end of a game and not feel compelled to completely overdo it and to not do the things that got you there in the first place. You're just so eager to, to do something and to make your imprint and, maybe stick around. And I find that so often the players that try to do those things are almost behaving exactly the opposite way that you would need to, to stick around. Um, But you saw as the season went on and he was actually finding like little cracks where he would get in there um, that he was calming down. You know, it wasn't as soon as he touched the ball, the three point was getting launched and he wasn't leaving every assignment to try to block shots is he was sort of realizing there's an opportunity to let the game breathe. I mean, you never know with guys like this, like the odds are completely against him really becoming an, an impact player for the Raptors, but you want to reward. I mean, he's been having a really good season in the D league and, and you want to reward. That's what the D league is for. You know, you go down there, you hone your skills to the point where a team in the NBA feels like there's a place for them in, in, in the big leagues. And you just see if they translate. And I mean, if everybody's healthy, he probably doesn't get that many minutes, but that said, you know, if, uh, if OG maybe continues to struggle a little bit, are there games when because the Raptors have a have a pretty light schedule the rest of the way? Are there games when maybe you throw him out there uh, alongside a Gasol or or an Ibaka to sort of see what that looks like? Well, sure, why not? Is 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 definitely not one of those guys that you sign and you sort of roll your eyes at it? It was like maybe with uh, Mclemore. This is a guy that I think has has earned his way up, and and I'd be really curious to see him. Uh, see him actually get some minutes down the stretch. The, the subplot in the uh, JV trade is that there is a, uh, you know, the, the reuniting of JV and Bruno in in Memphis. <laughs> really the only plot that matters, I'd say. Um, so this is the uh, weekly podcast. So we do a disservice if we don't actually look ahead to the games this week, because uh, that's what Will usually does. And uh, let me just pull up the schedule here uh, before we go into that. Just very briefly. Uh, the Raptors are starting a pretty big um, uh, homestand at this point after having swept the uh, the, the three-game road trip. Uh, here we go. Okay, so we got Brooklyn, Washington, and then the All-Star break, and then we come back with San Antonio, Orlando, Boston, and Portland all at home. This is a six-game homestand, so uh, with a couple of, uh, couple of games on uh, U.S. national television, San Antonio's on ESPN, and Boston is on TNT. Both are at the ACC. Uh, Tim, we're just going to go through this really quickly, man. Win-loss here only. Brooklyn. All right. Win. Washington. Win. San Antonio. Win. Orlando. 
Yeah, I want to be clever, but no, it's going to be a win. Boston. I'm going to call the Boston a loss. At home? I know. You know what? I, 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 it's, is, 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 is it because you had like you called five straight wins and you had to call a loss here? There's a little bit of that. But it's also, I feel that low, like the way that this team plays, like if they win, actually win those games, they're going to have been on like a pretty sizable winning streak at that point. You almost sort of feel like they're, they're, they're primed for a letdown against a team that, you know, could really, the way they're kind of floundering a little bit right now, could really use a, a win against a, a big team. I, uh, I, so that's my, that's my overthinking it completely. I, I think psychologically going three and one against Boston or one and three against Boston and one and three against Milwaukee does not bode well. Agreed. I mean, I I would. I, I think we. That, that's. A, it's not a must win. Obviously, nothing is a must win. There's no major consequence of it. But I feel you got to beat Boston at home. Uh, after what they did to us last time in Boston, that was that was a game that we had a great chance to win. It just you know the Kawhi's offense kind of dried up. We had a couple of late turnovers. This is a home game. You got to take care of. Otherwise, going into the postseason, I think you give the other. You know, you give Boston and Milwaukee that much confidence heading into a potential series, knowing that they've uh, they beaten you 3-1. But having said that, man, I do recall us beating teams 3-1 in the regular season and just getting our ass kicked in the postseason. So <laughs> maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. <clears throat> okay. Oh, yeah, we missed uh, Houston at the end, which is also uh, – sorry, not Houston, Portland uh, at home. Yep. Uh, I think they I think they beat Portland. So 6-1, so and one, basically, you're saying. That that's that would that would be my guess. Yeah, yeah man. Tim, it's been uh, about an hour. Uh, I do want to thank you for your time, man. Um, playoff starts soon. We'll talk before that. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.